Welcome to a very special episode of the Word on Worldviews podcast. I'm Ordnay Fushir, joined as always by my friend and co-host Kurt Norman. And also joining us today is a very special guest, Dr. Christopher Cohn. Uh, are you excited for this one? What, Kurt? I'm really excited for this episode. It's always good to hear from one of our teachers and uh, be in, uh, instructed by them, even if it's in this um, more free-form episode. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing some biblical teaching and wisdom. Right. Um, so let me give you a brief introduction um, to our audience so who may not be familiar with Dr. Cohn. Um, Dr. Cohn currently serves as the president and CEO of Agathon EDU and leads both Versity and Colorado Biblical University. He also serves as a research professor in transformative learning at both of these institutions. Dr. Cohn also previously served in various academic roles, including at, as president of Calvary University. He holds three doctorate degrees, one in theology and the other two being PhDs in theology and philosophy, respectively. Dr. Cohn also has written many books, including Priority in Biblical Hermeneutics and Theological Method, The Sofa Rule, A Biblical Approach to God's Sovereignty and Human Responsibility, and Life Beyond the Sun, Worldview and Philosophy Through the Lens of Ecclesiastes. These are just three. Uh, there are many more <laughs> that I could name. Um, so uh, welcome, Dr. Cohn. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself beyond this little introduction uh, I just gave, if I got anything wrong? And uh, like, where did you grow up? Any siblings? Uh, anything about your family that you care to share? Wow. Well, well thank you, uh, morning, uh, Kurt. It's very good to be with you. I'm, I'm excited to share the fellowship of the word as always and appreciate your ministries and the opportunity to just spend this time with you and, and with the audience. Um, you, you know, I suppose, uh, boy, a thumbnail, quick thumbnail sketch. I, I've been very, very blessed to uh, uh, to have a, a marvelous family. I've been married uh, almost 30 years to my lovely bride, Kathy. And we have two daughters, uh, Christiana and Kara Grace. And uh, um, uh, Kara is actually doing some early college with Colorado Biblical University. And Christiana uh, graduated from Calvary University and is uh, doing a, a master's in English, about to start that. <clears throat> so we're very, very blessed and thankful for them, um, the, the, uh, the time God's given us together in ministry. Uh, <laughs> Have uh, spent most of most of my time in in Texas, uh, sometime in Alaska, uh, as uh, missionaries up there, uh, and uh, more recently, of course, I was at, at Tyndale Seminary serving as a president there for uh, about eight, eight years, and then out to California, Southern California Seminary, uh, then Calvary University, and then uh, in the last couple of years, have been focused on. Uh, uh, developing a, a, a diversity, uh, a, a new uh, launch of a biblical university, and then Colorado Biblical University, a relaunch of Rocky Mountain Bible College. And so uh, mostly in the Kansas City area for the last couple of years, we've just added a campus in Iowa. So I'm between Colorado Biblical University and, and Colorado and Iowa and Kansas City, just kind of keeping very busy. Uh, but uh, uh writing and, and, and teaching and being able to share fellowship with uh, with folks like, like you is a great privilege. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm glad you could join us for this. Um, 
So the purpose for this episode was to do a little bit of a Q&A, maybe some questions, biblical questions, maybe even practical questions we may have had. I, I sourced some from people I know as well, and Kurt, is also, uh, Kurt also has a couple. Um, so Kurt, do you start, want to start with one of your questions maybe? I'll start with one of mine. Uh, Dr. Cohn, uh, good to be speaking with you once again. Uh, my question to you is, uh, why is the new covenant not for the church? And what is the main argument uh, between dispensationalists? Where does this sit on the line where people fall on one side or the other? Perfect. I love it. Boy, you're not you're not playing softball today, are you? <laughs> so... The, the, the New Covenant is introduced, of course, in Jeremiah 31. And uh, we have to make a choice right away. Are we going to use uh, uh, communication in its normal sense, the way that we understand each other when we talk and the way that speech and communication works, uh, what we would call the literal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic, or the normative way of understanding communication? Or... Uh, are, are we going to read our theology uh, into the communication so that we end up uh, being able to have a little bit of control over what's been said? Uh, well, because uh, of the idea of submitting to the communicator, uh, allowing the, the author to say what he intends and, and recognize that the author determines meaning rather than the reader, uh, uh, I would submit to that author and say what that author intends is, is the meaning I should understand. So I would take the normative hermeneutic approach. So when we get to Jeremiah 31, 31 specifically, uh, God says, Behold, days are coming, declares uh, Yahweh or the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then he goes on and continues explaining the, the contrast between the old covenant, the, the covenant through Moses, and this new covenant. And this new covenant includes, of course, uh, that it's with Israel and Judah. It includes uh, a universal uh, regeneration element, uh, and it includes uh, a restatement of the land blessing that the nation will be in the land and, and never disturb again. So because of those three basic things communicated in the text, um, in a normative understanding, it has to be a covenant made with Israel and with Judah. And Israel and Judah are both included because the kingdom was divided at that time, and God is uh, communicating that, that it's the whole thing. It's not just one part or the other. The whole thing will see this fulfilled. So uh, it, based on that understanding, uh, the new covenant is for Israel it will be fulfilled when Israel is in the land, uh, never to be disturbed again, and uh, when they are nationally saved. Every single member of this people of Israel is, is, uh, uh, believes in their Messiah and is delivered. Well, of course, that has never happened yet, right? Uh, Israel's not in the land undisturbed. Uh, the, the, all the people of Israel are not believing in the Messiah. Uh, so... Uh, we look forward to the fulfillment of that. Now, over the years, some have developed the idea on the on kind of a far uh, extreme, which you can understand, uh, that when these passages say Israel, they really mean the church. 
think about it this way. In 70 AD, uh, the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And imagine you've come along, let's say 400 AD or 450. Well, for hundreds of years, there's been no Israel nationally on the planet. And so when you see promises like this, you see that uh, uh, God must mean something else because Israel's gone. And if he meant Israel, then he's, he's not able to keep his promise. Uh, so it's easy then to say, well, he must have meant the church or uh, believers in general. And so you get this replacement theology trying to help God keep his word. Uh, over the years, there was a bit more of a compromise where, uh, especially since 1948, when Israel became a sovereign nation again, now we realize, oh, maybe God meant what he said, that he's going to keep this covenant with the actual nation. So we said, okay, but, but the new covenant, we, we believe this is so relevant to the church. We're going to say it's fulfilled with Israel, but the church receives new covenant blessings. Uh, and so, uh, so there's kind of these three views. The first view is what I described where it's only for Israel. Uh, uh, the second view is that it's uh, only for the church. It's not a, a national Israel thing anymore. And then the third uh, view is that, uh, that it's for Israel, but the church participates in it or receives some blessings. Uh, is that making sense so far, Kurt? It's making sense, yes. Yeah, uh, okay. that was a good uh, so, summary. Yeah, yeah. So so the challenge then is recognizing where these three teachings derive and, you know, understanding the hermeneutic principles and understanding uh, just the, the biblical uh, the, the biblical assertion so that I can look at the scriptures and, and not make the mistake of, including myself in a promise that he's given to someone else. So I'd say it maybe succinctly like this. Um, the new covenant is to be one day fulfilled with Israel. Um, and it is fulfilled through the Messiah, the Christ. And the church's blessings uh, in this era of the church the church's blessings are really more coming through the Abrahamic covenant, uh, but because the, the new covenant is paid for by the Messiah, uh, and the, and and that that same Messiah has died for all and paid for the sin of all who believe in Him, uh, paid for the sin, of course, uh, of all whether they believe or not, but applied if they believe in Him, then uh, there the church by uh, believing in these in, in Christ the church has blessings uh, in, in this relationship to the one who's fulfilling the new covenant uh, but they're not a part of the new covenant so it's a it's an interesting distinction and not one by the way not one that everyone will agree with me on <laughs> yeah that's uh, thanks dr Ken that's a very good um, summary of the various views as well um, because some people see like a part type of participation, uh, the church participates in the new covenant somewhat. Some people view it as, well, as yourself, um, completely separate. And then like it's only for Israel. And then the the replacement, the complete replacement theology view, of, of course, 
um, goes that it's only for the church. <clears throat> so um, my question, the first one I want to um, present is, in Ephesians, um, Paul admonishes children to honor their parents, and he cites an interesting reason. And he cites the first commandment with a promise, um, referring to the Old Covenant, um, specifically now the Ten Commandments. Now, if these New Testament believers are free from the law, as we, you know, we believe that, but why does Paul mention this promise then given in the Mosaic Law as a reason why children should honor their parents? Excellent. Excellent question. <clears throat> and, and there are certainly several instances in the New Testament where there are quotes and allusions to, uh, to the Old Covenant. Uh, and, and I would say this. I would say similar to the issue with the New Covenant, you have uh, about five passages in the New Testament or instances in the New Testament where the New Covenant is brought up, for example, and uh, and it's important to recognize that those passages don't make specific application to the church in the sense of bringing the church into it. Okay? The same thing is happening here, I believe. Uh, you know, he says, honor your father and mother, and then adds, this is the first commandment with a promise, so it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And I think the reason that Paul would bring this up is because he's repeating something that is, uh, that's a principle that they would all know, uh, and he's, he's telling them the importance of this. When you go back to the Mosaic Law, this was the first one that came with a particular promise, uh, of long life. This is a very important one. And I think it's there for emphasis. Uh, you know, when he says, for example, in verse 4, uh, Ephesians 6, verse 4, fathers don't uh, provoke your children to anger. Well, that wasn't a part of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, and and so there's no reason to reference back. But the people would have been very familiar with the, the children's responsibility to honor the parent. And so as Paul brings that up, he's explaining this is nothing new. This is, in fact, this was so important back then that it came with a promise. I think it's that kind of emphasis, but he's not then placing believers under that entire covenant or even under that specific aspect of the covenant um, by the reference. Does that make sense? Uh, yes. Um, I, that's what I was thinking um, when I tried to make sense of it, uh, that is using it to illustrate something. Um, that's what where I was at uh, when I was looking at that text um, considering that uh, because we don't divide the law into that you know as dispensationalists into that tripartite view where the Ten Commandments still apply somehow and then the rest of the dietary and ceremonial applications don't etc right. so um, my next one is uh, maybe a little bit uh, strange but it's something I've been wrestling with because uh, I feel quite allergic to typology. Um, <laughs> so, isn't the proto-evangelium, uh, um, what God told the serpent in the garden, an example of eisegesis, or at least using a hermeneutic other than the literal grammatical historical approach? Good question. So, you're, you're, you're referencing uh, Genesis 3.15, uh, when... God says to the serpent, so we go back to verse 14, because you have done this, accursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field on your belly, you'll go destitute, eat all the days of your life. That sounds like the judgment on this creature 
uh, just very straightforward uh, judgment on this on this on the serpent as a creature. Um, then he adds, "I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed." Now that's where right right there with that reference of her seed, there's something going on there, because uh, the woman doesn't have seed. That's a very strange reference. Uh, and then it says he'll crush you on the head and you shall uh, crush him on the heel. Now, uh, I, I think, that, again, that reference to her seed is, is very strange uh, in, in a normative sense. That's not a reference you would expect. So there's something a little bit stranger. I mean, you, you might also add... It's also strange that a serpent is talking and speaking. Right? <laughs> yes. So, here's more going on uh, than simply uh, a snake being, you know, stepped on or being, you know, judged. Um, but we also we have to be very careful not to go beyond the text. And if all we had was Genesis three fifteen, uh, I, I would I would not even refer to it as a proto-evangelium or you know, a first gospel or something like that. I, I think uh, that's not revealed in the text. I, I think I would probably refer to this as a foreshadowing in the sense that uh, it, it is a prophecy. God is saying what he will accomplish, and there will be something specific between this particular uh, particular servant because it's a it's a, uh, a a second person singular, not not plural. He's not referencing all of the serpents that will come. He's referencing this particular serpent, saying there will be this enmity and and then between her seed, and her seed will uh, will crush this this serpent. Well, we have to go a lot further in the context. Uh, to arrive at, uh, um, I think, a, a, a fulfillment or an understanding of the fulfillment of that. Uh, you know, when you, you get to Revelation, and he is called the serpent of old, right? Satan is called the serpent of old. Uh, and so I think you're very wise to have that concern, just to, to not to read too much into it, but the way we see the New Testament authors applying that text uh, tells us there's a prophecy that is one day fulfilled, and it's not fulfilled with Eve. It's fulfilled uh, with with Christ ultimately uh, uh, in judgment against the, the uh, Satan, who is the serpent of old. Did, does that make sense? Would you agree with that? Disagree? Um, yes, it makes sense. It makes me uh, the foreshadowing approach. I think, or looking at it is that you can see those illustrations. I think helps um, maybe to be careful not to read too much into those. Um, I, I guess that's what always my what my chief concern is always when, especially because people go strange with typology, it can get quite extensive and I think beyond what is written, um, and that's my concern. But yeah, I think your explanation uh, at least sheds a little bit more light or at least gives a bit of perspective in how we should approach this. Um, the next one. Here's a thought real quick morning on that. We, uh, we always connect the serpent in the garden with Satan, but there's really only the two references in Revelation. And those didn't come about until the first century, right? Uh, so uh, up until that point, 
uh, it would have been oral teaching and extra biblical teaching really to make that connection exegetically, if you will. Uh, you know, we have the privilege of, of seeing the whole picture, uh, all of the biblical text. So we can make that connection and say, oh, that was indeed Satan. Uh, but we've got to be careful in how we handle it. So I, I appreciate your caution. Oh, yeah, that that's true as well. I, I, that now that you mention it, that's true. The, the, the snake is never called Satan in Genesis. Um, that, you know, that makes uh, makes a bit more sense now. So the next one may be a little bit more practical, and it's one from a family member. Now, how do you recommend responding to or approaching atheists when you are engaging with them in conversations where you attempt to convince them of a biblical worldview? Uh, that's a fantastic question, um, and it, it, it shows there's uh, that the, the the one who who arrived at the question is really looking with with love toward those who don't know Christ, longing to uh, that they might know Christ. That's excellent. Uh, I, I I like to go to biblical examples um, because in some cases you'll see these evangelistic episodes or episodes of sharing the gospel with those who don't know Christ, and then you see the outcome, so you can kind of uh, understand the process and how effective uh, that was. And I think uh, Acts 17 is a fantastic uh, recipe, I think, example and recipe. Uh, you know, as Paul is dealing with the Athenians, the Athenians are not atheists in the sense that they don't deny that there's a higher power. They just they believe in the whole Greek pantheon and all of that. Um, but uh, Paul, as he engages with them, he sees these uh, in the city there. He sees all these many idols, uh, many many different uh, systems of worship. Uh, but he sees one uh, in particular, one altar that says to the to the unknown god. And then what Paul does is he, he points to that and he says, what you uh, worship in ignorance, I, I proclaim to you in truth. Okay, so what he's done is, he, first of all, he's, he's very skilled in understanding their worldview. Um, and I think we need to be, we need to understand the worldview of those that we're, we're, we're serving and, and seeking to uh, uh, lead, lead to Christ. So that's uh, number one. He understands their worldview because he's done the work. Secondly, instead of uh, uh, critiquing every point of their worldview, he finds the weakness. Uh, not only the weakness, but the point where they recognize it's a weakness. Uh, and I think that's really important. Uh, so when speaking with someone who doesn't believe in, in Christ, I, rather than defend my worldview, I want them to arrive at... Uh, the understanding of where the weakness is in their worldview. Uh, wh what's wrong with their worldview? Where, where, where are they uncertain about it? And that's what Paul does. Uh, just in case they missed something, they had this altar to an unknown God, which means they're admitting in their worldview they might have missed something. So Paul proclaims to them, here's how all this happened. Here's what you've missed. And I think if we do the same thing by asking questions instead of, asserting our own views, asking questions, uh, uh, trying to understand what what gives you fulfillment, what brings you joy, 
what motivates you in life? You know, questions that seem very normal and not quote unquote religious. Uh, and they'll show some uncertainty or some insecurity. And then and you can show them from there how Jesus actually uh, is the solution to that weakness or that insecurity. That's what Paul is doing in Acts 17. Now, one other encouraging point about that is uh, the response is given. There are three responses, right? Some ridicule him, uh, some believe, and others want to hear more. And, and so that's encouraging that even, even Paul doing a masterful job of communicating the gospel, he was still ridiculed and still rejected. So don't be discouraged by that. But I think uh, looking at Paul's model in Acts 17, uh, trying to ask questions about the, the other person's worldview so that you can understand uh, and they acknowledge where the weakness is and then show biblically how uh, Jesus meets that need, I think is a, a really nice formula. And it's one that's been helpful for me, I, I think, as well. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, you know, having, because you can't just randomly approach someone and tell them, look, this, this, and this. You, know, you have to sort of develop rapport with someone to get to that point. Um, yeah, it's a relationship, right? Mm. You're, you're you're trying to to help someone along, help them to to uh, to know Christ. Yeah, thanks, Doctor Cohn. Um, Kurt, do you want to ask your question, your following question now, or should I still do the the following one? Uh, I'll ask mine now. Um, Dr. Cohn, my next question has to do with uh, leaky dispensationalism. And uh, having studied at a, an institution that is part of the Master's Academy International, um, I would like to ask, how do these people come to the conclusion that they're using the literal grammatical historical interpretation when they're interpretations differ so much from our own, the normative dispensationalists? Great question, Kurt. And the, the simple answer is habit. Uh, and, and let me unpack that a little bit. Uh, prior to the Reformation, for uh, you know, almost, almost 1,500 years, um, 1,400 years, uh, there was a, uh, a multiplicity of hermeneutic senses. In other words, you, you see especially four, four hermeneutic senses uh, in, the, in the Middle Ages and, uh, and in the Roman Catholic Church, which dominated, uh, taught essentially that you would interpret the scriptures through the, the tradition of the church, historical theology of the church. And... Uh, and the normal person, the regular person, was fairly illiterate and couldn't do the research themselves to, to see what the text actually said. Well, along come the reformers getting back to the text, returning to the study of the biblical languages, and, and holding theology accountable to what the text says. Now, the problem is they only focused on that really in soteriology, uh, and, and didn't didn't deconstruct all of theology and build it back up biblically. They focused on a few specific areas, um, even to the point where when you look at John Calvin and, and you read his Institutes and you look at his hermeneutics, 
he, you would expect him to, to go into great detail on hermeneutic method. He does not. He, he essentially argues for historical theology as the hermeneutic. So what Calvin did is he carried over the, the Catholic hermeneutic. And what we discover is as Reformed theology advanced, it kind of splintered in two directions. Uh, one direction, which has come to be really known as covenant theology, uh, holds to that Catholic hermeneutic uh, and the, that partial Reformed hermeneutic, which leans extensively on historical theology. In other words, if somebody has said it in the past, that carries authoritative weight. Uh, the other stream uh, has, has become labeled dispensational thought or dispensationalism, and it has uh, at least tried to refuse uh, recognizing historical theology as authoritative. Historical theology is great, but it's not part of our hermeneutic. So you've got these two different streams. One results in dispensational thought. One results in covenant theology. And you mentioned leaky dispensationalism. Uh, we can all be guilty of this. Uh, we can think that we're using a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic when, in fact, uh, we are relying on historical theology as an authority. And uh, one who, uh, you know, John MacArthur is the is the one who has termed himself as a leaky dispensationalist. Yes. And when you look at how he arrives at his theological conclusions. He arrives at some very, very solid, correct conclusions uh, uh, at times, uh, especially in relation to cessationism. But he defends those first uh, with a his historical theology basis rather than a purely exegetical basis. And when you do that, your methodology makes you prone to error uh, in other areas. And I think that's where, with respect to soteriology and, and doctrines of salvation that's where i think he goes far astray because he's trying to resolve difficulties and relying too much on experiential and historical theology and not enough on just exegesis right does that that answer the question yes that does answer my question thank you good very right. insightful question these are excellent <laughs> uh the next one is actually from a dear friend, um, and he asked, um, this is also a more practical type of question, and these are actually questions I like. What would you consider the most effective approach uh, for a dispensationalist um, to, to use in countering the popularity of replacement theology? And I would add in that, um, say, reform theology, because it's become quite popular, especially recently. That's, that's good. So over covenant theology and Reformed theology really uh, was prominent in the academy where dispensational theology is more of a grassroots uh, in the churches. And I think uh, for the most part in the, in the churches, you still see a lot of that uh, basic uh, normative, uh, uh, understanding of scripture uh, where the, the churches haven't necessarily been uh, uh, directed or, or heavily influenced by the academy. Now, one of the challenges 
it, this is related, but it might seem like a little bit of a sidebar. So let me draw this. Allowing the academy to dictate its theology and its practical theology. For example, often when a church needs needs a, uh, leaders, they'll they'll go hire them from people who are trained at the academy rather than and developing them in-house, discipling, that type of thing. And so a lot of times you can get this outside influence that sometimes can be good, but other times it can be a totally different theological thing. Well, Reformed theology excelled in the academy, and dispensational theology excelled in the church, in the churches themselves. Now, over time, uh, the, the academy has become very good at communicating at a popular level, in in books and especially in the last maybe 15 years uh in blogs and uh, various online tools and social media and dispensational thinkers often are so busy in church ministry with limited resources that they're not they're not using those same tools as much and their their voice is not as loud uh, so that's a practical reason why i think that's developed um, but I do think it also presents a challenge to those who are, are seeking to handle the Bible with this literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. The challenge is to have a voice in those settings, uh, to publish, to write, to communicate on social media, to be involved in, in uh, uh, blogs and different online venues and video, all these things. Um, so I think that's kind of the dynamic of how it's developed a little bit. So how to counter it. Uh, in whatever environment you find yourself, uh, be faithful with the word, proclaim the word, teach the word, uh, and make the most of that opportunity. And if we are doing that, <clears throat> then our, our, our voice gets a little bit louder, I think, and it gives people an alternative that they don't have to simply respond uh, to uh, the majority argument, but rather there are some other ways to look at things that are very compelling. All right, thanks Dr. Cohn. Second one is an, another one from a family member. I try to include them as early as possible in case I in case we don't have enough time. <laughs> so yeah, and this that. and this one actually uh, was uh, caught me off guard as well because and then I looked at the texting and yeah this is the case. It, so why in Exodus in Exodus four did God seek to kill Moses? Uh, that's an that's excellent. Uh, there are a couple of instances where, uh, where, where, where God is is doing something that uh, that it appears He can't do. So, for example, I, I'm assuming you're referencing uh, when when God is uh, there. There's a couple of instances. God is actually. Uh, going to uh, get in Moses' way and, and take his life, uh, would he do that? That's the, that's the, the first question that, uh, that you would ask. Uh, another, here's another example. You'll recall after uh, Israel sinned, God says to Moses, I'm going to uh, kill them all and I'm going to start again with you. Right. Yes. Uh, and so God is putting this to Moses, this test, if you will, 
And if uh, if uh, Moses says, "Okay, Lord, start over with me," well, uh, he would be glorifying himself to the detriment of God's word because God had made a promise that included uh, that Judah would be the tribe of royalty. God could not start over with Moses because Moses is from the wrong tribe. So God did not intend to uh, to complete that. He did not intend to kill everyone and start over with Moses. He presented that to Moses. It's a test for Moses. Same thing with uh, Isaac and Abraham. He presents this uh, to Abraham, testing Abraham. Uh, Abraham, do you value me above all else so that you're willing to give up everything uh in in your worship of, of me. And Abraham demonstrates his faithfulness and his willingness. God never intended for him to, to kill Isaac. And it, I think in the same way, um, you, you, see, uh, you see God uh, uh, prepared to strike down Moses, but it's more of a test in that situation than a... Uh, we, we have to be careful with hypotheticals, right? Uh, because we don't, we only know what happened and, and we can't think, think about what would have happened if. Uh, so we can only look at what we have, and I would suggest that that situation is a test as well. Okay, that makes sense because it's such a short mention. Uh, it's a single verse, I think. Um, God, the Lord, was seeking to take Moses' life. I'll, I, I'd, I'd have to open up the text to get the wording accurately um but it was a very interesting one because because sometimes you read the text and you glance over things like this and and then looking back at it well this, this is what it's saying so um right. but, uh, regardless thanks for the answer now this is one uh i have also been wondering about um how do we deal with passages uh, in First Corinthians uh, about head coverings? Uh, most churches don't require them for women anymore. Traditionally, historically, it was, uh, at least in most churches, something required as part of uh, like a dress code. Uh, why are we currently ignoring uh, an imperative uh, by not requiring this or are we missing something? Excellent question, and uh, uh, there, I think sometimes we arrive at the at the right conclusion, but for the wrong reasons, uh, and I think that's pretty common in this instance. Uh, so, first of all, the, the passage this First Corinthians eleven, the passage establishes the headship of Christ, uh, the headship of uh, of the man uh, as, as head of a woman as God is the head of Christ. <clears throat> so it's, just, it's establishing this, the, uh, affirming this headship and explaining uh, essentially that the husband, the man and the woman are playing a role portraying God and, and, and Christ in this. And so there's no essential inequality or anything like that. But as, as he establishes this, uh, he explains how how that the covering of one's head uh, affirms or or denies that relationship, and I mean it says verse six, if a woman doesn't cover her head, let her have her hair completely cut off. Uh, but it's disgraceful for her to have her hair cut off, red shaved, let it, let it cover her head. Well, uh, 
from that, if that's all we have, verse 6, it sounds like it's saying that uh, that a woman should wear an external covering, especially in English, right? Um, and verse 10, uh, again, it explains the purpose of that in verses 8 and 9, showing the relationship of man and woman. But then in verse 10, uh, it explains that the, the, the woman needs to have authority on her head, uh, in, in particular, for the angels and that's really kind of shocking because he doesn't explain that at all so we kind of have to leave that alone and continue again then in verse 12 he explains women and man and their relationship um, uh, and then he moves to the man's hair uh, and that if a man has long hair it's a dishonor now this is where the cultural aspect uh, comes into play uh, because what is long in some cultures my hair would be considered long in other cultures it wouldn't right in most it wouldn't but in some it would so uh what is long well he's talking to the corinthians in their culture uh and and saying that nature teaches if a man has long hair it's a dishonor to him. that's not that's not the de- that's not illustrating the design but then notice in verse 15 if a woman has long hair it's a glory to her where, where does this idea come from and he explains at the end of verse 15, kind of the key to the whole issue. Her hair is given to her. And in English, it says for a covering. But the, the Greek is a comparative. It's, it's, it's as a covering. Uh, so her hair is given at, as a covering. And what that's saying is this is the, the hair itself is the covering. And so I would arrive at the that a woman does not need to wear a hair covering because God has given her hair and her hair in itself is a is a uh, illustrates that um, now there are always exceptions to these pictures you know if someone has chemotherapy and they have their a woman has her head shaved that's not uh, for a rebellious purpose or or to to make a state a gender statement it's because uh, uh, her hair is uh, falling out in clumps, right? It's a very difficult thing. So there are exception, exceptions within cultural settings, but the general principle is that the woman's hair is given as a covering. Uh, and so I think it maybe is a little simpler, not requiring an external covering, but, uh, but illustrates just by the nature of the hair itself uh, something of that relationship and the authority roles. Does that make any sense at all? Yes, uh, it does. It, it makes sense. Um, I think Kurt just stepped out. Um, well, are you back, Kurt? I am back. Okay, great. That was my dentist appointment tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, life happens, eh? Um, now, Dr. Kern, the following question, um, also one of the ones I've been wondering about. Um, both James and Jesus himself in the gospel speak negatively of taking oaths. Um and how do we reconcile this principle in a society where taking oaths of office, taking oaths in court, or taking oaths as part of our professions is so common? And should Christians refuse to take oaths um, or not? That's a, that's a very good question. Uh, you know, you have your let your yes be yes and your no be out and anything beyond that is evil. Well, in the context, the reason that, that, that James is talking about that uh, is, is pride. Uh, you know, he he says, your yes is to be asked, your no, no, so you may not fall under judgment. And what he's saying is, you uh, 
you're, you, if you're making statements about something that you don't have control, you're asking for trouble, right? You're, you're, you're making oaths and you don't have the control over these things. So he says, don't swear by heaven or by earth or of any, any oath. Uh, now, uh, when, when, when we think about the various oaths that we take, um, uh, number one, we have a, uh, in certain settings, we may have a legal requirement. And uh, what do you do when, <clears throat> when there is a conflict between what God tells us and, and what the states tells us? And, of course, we see that modeled in Acts, with, where Peter says, uh, I'll obey, we'll obey God rather than men. Um, but he was also willing to accept the consequences. Now, putting that into context... If we think about the various oaths that we take, um, you know, for, for example, in the United States, there's the Pledge of Allegiance, where one pledges allegiance to the flag. Um, uh, well, personally, I don't. I, I, don't uh, uh, I, I don't really do that because my allegiance isn't to the flag. I love my country. I'm grateful for my country, and I, I, uh, I would give my life uh, for my country. Uh, so that, that my fellow country people can enjoy the freedoms, especially to uh, to worship God. So that's an example where another person might say, I have no problem pledging allegiance because what is allegiance? You know, what does that mean? Well, for me, it means this or that. So there's a bit of hermeneutic process going on with these. Uh, there's also various oaths like uh, uh, an oath of office. I solemnly swear to, uh, to defend the Constitution from all enemies, Domestic and abroad, for example, again, the, you know, the, one of the presidential uh, oaths of office. Um, to use the term swear is, a, is an English word. It's not the same Greek word necessarily. Um, and the hand is on the Bible. And it's also, so help me God, right? In that case, saying, as God helps me. And I like how William Tyndale put it one time. He says, as God gives me breath, the boy behind a plow will know more of Scripture than you know, these these." Catholic officials. So I, I think there's room for firm and solemn statements, uh, especially when they're uh, showing reliance on, on an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. I think what James is pointing out in verse uh, chapter 5, verse 12, is uh, not to swear, uh, not to make these solemn statements by heaven or earth. I, I swear by heaven I shall do this, that kind of Because you can't. You don't have... We don't even know what the next day will hold, and that's what he's rebuking. So I think uh, James's statement is very brief. Uh, it's very, uh, very concise. And, and we, we look at the various statements in life that we make in, in, through that lens and ensure we're not violating the, the principle that he, that he identified. Otherwise, we couldn't even use the word certainly. Uh, you know, our, our, I'm certain of this. It's either uh, yes or no. I can't say anything beyond yes or no. That's not what James is doing. He's just telling them not to be swearing or making these statements beyond what they have the capacity to do. Does that, that help at all? That makes sense. It also reminds me of um, in James, James also talks about um, not even saying tomorrow we will do this or that, but only if the Lord wills. Um, talking about how dependent we are on God's grace uh, in, and providence in our daily lives. Um, 
that that's I think a connection I just made there, um, in in your expl explaining of this. Um, so thanks. Very, very important. Yes. Um, another one, and it feels like I'm just asking questions, but maybe uh, when we're done with our list, we can get a little bit more casual. Maybe ask a few more. I I don't know how much time you have, um, Doctor Cohn. But um, I'm, uh, I'm at, at your mercy. So I'm, <laughs> I'm all you as long as you. <laughs> so um, the following one um, was I, my personal reading. I've recently read through Colossians, and um, as dispensationalists, we are often hesitant um, to mention the kingdom of God. At least I know I am in contexts other than eschatology um, and in the proper context. So how do we deal with Paul talking about his fellow workers for the kingdom of God in Colossians 4? That's excellent. I think we, we start in the, you know, the first mention of the kingdom back in uh, Colossians 1. When he, he says he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. <clears throat> um, so that's an error. So it's, a, it's speaking of completed action that that, that transfer has happened. And that rescue has, is, is as it completed. Uh, and, and it speaks of this kingdom. Now, interestingly, then, when we get to uh, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, you know, uh, notice 3, verse 1, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, see at the right hand of God. So we've been transferred to his kingdom. Uh, uh, is that kingdom on earth in any way, shape, or form? He says... You've been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking things above, right, where he is. And then one day, verses 3 and 4, when he's revealed, will be revealed in glory. So that follows the, the pattern that we would understand in a normative reading of Scripture, that when Jesus returns, he establishes his kingdom. He returns in glory, establishes his kingdom. Uh, and that, that kingdom, we are citizens of that kingdom. Now, uh, a little bit of definition is important. Uh, that kingdom has has always been, uh, you could say, the issue is the address of the kingdom. So it's, look at it this way. God has this, where Christ is in the heavens. Um, that That's just his eternal reign and rule. Uh, but Second Samuel 7 promised that there would be an eternal uh, king and throne in the line of David. And as we see those promises <clears throat> expanded and unfold, we discover that God's eternal kingdom will actually move its location from the heavens to the earth. And in a very specific form, Jesus will rule on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And that will be the epicenter of God's kingdom on earth. And so in Colossians 1 and 3, 4, what we discover is that we are citizens of his kingdom, uh, but he is not sitting on a throne right now. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Uh, he's not sitting on David's throne. He's not ruling right now. He's waiting. He, he hasn't been revealed in glory. He will be revealed. So we can say uh, that there is currently the kingdom of God as long as we recognize it's in the heavens. It's not a spiritual thing in our hearts. That's never a biblical concept. 
it, uh, it's not uh, the throne of David in the heavens as progressive dispensationalism teaches. That's never uh, presented in Scripture. Instead, we know that this kingdom is centered with this king, and the king will one day sit on the throne. So we can speak of the kingdom, uh, but uh, the kingdom is not here, uh, and it's not, not yet, but it one day will be. Does that make any sense? Yes, uh, that, that makes sense, because of course we, we are, in a sense, as believers, citizens of God's kingdom, but although the kingdom isn't presently on earth. Um, right, and that's the, the, so the big challenge, some will teach that the kingdom is here and now, in, in fullness, in a spiritual sense, others, that it's an already not yet, that it's spiritually here in our hearts, but that Jesus is ruling on the throne of David in heaven, which, again, these aren't biblical approaches. So, yes, it's important to recognize we are citizens. That's why we're looking for things above, looking for things above until Christ returns and then the kingdom is here. Right, that makes sense. Now, the last one of the listed questions, I, I think we can get a little bit more free form and talk about interesting things after this. Um, in Colossians 2, uh, well, the chapter is often mentioned by especially covenant theologians as evidence that baptism has replaced circumcision. How do we counter this argument? Because Paul does link these concepts in a way. Uh, so Colossians 2, and let me get back there. Okay, and so you are referencing verse 12, I'm guessing, the uh, uh, really 10 through, uh, 10 through 13, I suppose. So in, in verse uh, 11, it says, In him you're also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And the circumcision was, of course, a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Yes. Uh, so, and that was for Abraham and his, his uh, descendants. Uh, it was a symbol of the, that they were a distinct people. Now, uh, this passage refers to believers as being circumcised with circumcision made without hands. In other words, the, there's, a, there's a sign uh, of this relationship that is not physical. So the people are used to these physical signs. Um, they're circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by circumcision of Christ. So when, when we, we were buried with him in baptism, well, of course, we, we died with him first, right? Uh, when we believe in him, we have now uh, died with him, and, and the Father sees our righteousness through, through that death of Christ. So we, we underwent that process with him in a positional sense. Uh, and so it's fair to say, as Paul does, that, uh, that this is the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. <clears throat> well, he is clearly talking about, and he tells you, uh, that it's made without hands. This is a, this is a spiritual circumcision, right? We're not, we're not interpreting the passage spiritually, right? Oh, Dr. Cohn, we lost you for a moment there. Ah, uh, okay. Am I back? You are back. <laughs> good, good, good. I apologize. Uh, so I'm not sure where, uh, how, how, how much I gave the perfect answer. So you missed it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> yeah, we I'm missed kidding. we missed what, out on that one. <laughs> the last words what, what, we heard were in this not interpreting it in the spiritual sense. Good, good. Yeah, so that's the first key is that we're not taking a spiritual interpretation. We're understanding that what Paul is saying is clearly a a contrast between physical circumcision and this spiritual circumcision or this non-fleshly circumcision. Uh, and uh, so it's it's not one replacing the other. It's these Colossians who, by the way, would have been almost entirely Gentile. Um, these these uh, these believers, he's explaining they have this relationship with Christ not through circumcision. Uh, so he's not saying baptism is the new circumcision. He's saying. You have this relationship with Christ, uh, and, and it's through the, the death, through the burying, being buried with him in baptism, which, by the way, is the baptism of the Spirit from 1 Corinthians 12, uh, which he accomplishes the moment a person believes, not water baptism. In fact, he's explaining that it's not uh, the, the water, as does Peter later. So uh, I think this if this argument, this passage is used to argue that baptism has replaced circumcision, that would be a very self-defeating argument because he's actually explaining it's different because it's not circumcision. It's not fleshly. It's a spiritual thing. And you didn't have the, you're not even concerned about the fleshly. Hmm, that makes sense. Well, that's the list of, do you have any more questions? That's, that's the list of questions that I formally typed out and I do have a couple more questions. One I'd like to um, just close off with uh, when we do get to the closing off point. Um, the question that I'd like to ask is uh, concerning textual variants. Now, as a pastor, you know, I'm teaching a, a congregation and they don't have the same level of education as I do. Uh, one of my problems personally is a, a hesitancy to mention such things because I am concerned that someone has a crisis of faith and says, oh, what, there's variations? So which one is the Word of God? Um, how would you handle that for someone who is not as educated and just calm their fears? That's a that's a great question, Kurt, and a very, a very real problem in really every church. A real challenge. <clears throat> um, I, let me give an, an illustration, if I might. Okay? As a as a father of two daughters, um, I want to make sure that I've trained them up in the Word and that I've exposed them to all these other views and ideas so that when they get out of, of, of the household and they're on their own, uh, they're not hit with new things that, that knock them back uh, so that they're prepared and they're like, oh yeah, I remember, I, 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 I was told about this and I understand this and I understand context and I can compare it to scripture right, and, and test it through the lens of the scriptures. Um, I was always concerned that if I withheld from them the other views, uh, the other worldviews, and didn't expose them to those views, 
uh, as I've seen with some others, they get out there and they're totally unprepared. Young people going into college are totally unprepared to deal with the other views. And then instead of testing them through the lens of scripture, they, they see them as equal and they're choosing between these views. And so as a parent, I've tried to uh, teach the word and make sure they understand these other views and how the word counters them so they're prepared. I think it's similar in a pastoral role that uh, we do have textual variants. We do have hundreds of manuscripts. Um, we don't have the original manuscripts. And the, there are implications of that. Uh, I would rather uh, a, a young person, for example, uh, discover that by me explaining to them uh, and showing them how that works and encouraging them that they can trust the reliability of Scripture and the veracity of the text uh, because of all this evidence uh, of all of these, these manuscripts and the, the, the differences are, are, are typically very insignificant and here's the process of transmission of documents and things. I would rather they hear that from me than, uh, than they have a false sense that they hold in their hand a, almost a magical document that, that, uh, uh, that has no, uh, no conflicts in it, you know. And I'll just give an example. Uh, when I'm challenging people about the importance of studying the biblical languages, I first explain that the, the limitedness of the English translations, as, you know, as we're working with that. Uh, so I tell them, uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Jacob. Uh, and as you might imagine, they're often, they'll, they'll, they'll look at me funny and... What do you mean? There's no book of Jacob. Well, there is a book of Jacob. In fact, we've referred to it a couple of times in, in uh, uh, looking at some passages. Yes. Uh, the, the gentleman's name was Jacob or Jacob. It was not James, right? James is yes. a later Latinization and, and, and change. So it, any Bible that has the name James in it is an error. It's actually not correct. And, and so... I used that as an example to say, hey, you know, there's translation preferences and things. And what we need to do is get back to the text, the, the, the languages, and understand there are different manuscripts. And, and so you have to do work to understand. And sometimes you have to say, well, it could be this or it could be that, like the ending of Mark, uh, you know, or John chapter 8, for example. Uh, Romans 8, 8 1 uh, uh, has a really important variant. So I, I, I guess my point is I would rather encourage the discussion and challenge people to <clears throat> up their literacy, uh, to become more literate so they can have confidence in what's true and, and, and the word as God has provided it, uh, rather than, uh, than having faith in, in, in the Bible in their in what they have in front of them as being something different than it is maybe and then that being crushed because someone points out hey uh look at the king james uh, of romans 8 1 versus the uh, the niv or the new american standard notice the the contradiction you know your whole faith is a sham it's fake 
uh, I would rather them know how to deal with that and say and, and understand that. <laughs> that was interesting. That excuse. Yes. That was interesting that you had mentioned uh, the book of Jacob because. Um, uh, as I don't know whether you know or not, but English is not my own language. I speak Afrikaans, and our translation of um, what we call the Book of James is Jacobus, um, which is like from the Latin or Greek word probably used. I don't know what those translations uh, call uh, call the Book of James, but yeah, <laughs> that was interesting. So that that didn't that didn't uh, floor me. <laughs> That's excellent. You see, because you're going to a translation that is translating accurately, actually transliterating, because that is the Greek name. Hmm. Uh, but it's the when you get into the Latin that they change it, uh, and and uh, even the English translations that translate word for word from the Greek, they all use the name James. Hmm. Uh, so they're bad in, in that in that instance. They're bad translations. Uh, and it introduces the idea of textual criticism in a good way. There's lower criticism, which is dealing with manuscripts. The higher criticism is dealing with authorship. And the, in, in many cases, it's driven by those who are trying to deny uh, <clears throat> that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Lower criticism is a different thing altogether, I think. So I... It's difficult. I, I would rather engage them and, and invite the questions and have the conversations. Uh, well, let me say it this way, and then I'll, I'll stop on this. I would rather uh, have my children learn about difficult issues in life, like like sex and, and, and things like that, at home, learning how to view these things biblically, than having to go out and, and learn from someone else who may not be working from a biblical perspective. That's that's a very good um, point. It is, yes. Um, a question I also now thought of, um, uh, My our first daughter was born in January uh, of this year, and you know, these things get you think about this. What would you say is the best, as your child grows up um, and you are also a parent with older children, what would you say is the best approach uh, in evangelizing your young children? Um, uh, in, I, I obviously teach them the Bible, but when obviously they will have questions, etc. But like, what would you say is the best? Because you want to preach the gospel to them. Uh, like, what would you say is the best approach in evangelizing your children? Well, I love that question. Uh, and congratulations on the new addition to the family. Uh, there's nothing quite like, you know, holding that new life and recognizing yeah. I'm accountable before God to, to, yeah. uh, to take care of this young person. Uh, you know, I, I think of two passages in particular, um, uh, and another popped in my head. I'll start with Ephesians six four. Uh, you know, fathers don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I think. Uh, that's the that's the uh, that's the imperative. There is to to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So I have to I have to know what is the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and then I'm going to to bring them up in that. Uh, and what does it mean to bring someone up? Well, I think about 
you know, in Deuteronomy uh, 6, as he's describing how you're, you're, you're engaging your family with these things, when you sit down, when you rise up in the morning, in the evening, you know, meal, these. <clears throat> so I would use the word immersed. Uh, in, instead of trying to have quality time going through the word with your, your children, have quantity time. Be immersed where you're doing life together and every moment together is a teaching moment where you're bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Th think about how Jesus made his disciples as, as he's walking around with them. They're, they're walking from one place to the next. Uh, and as, he's, as they're going, he's teaching, you know, he's, he's guiding, he's uh, helping them to think through things. Uh, and then, and then I think of Third John, where he says, "I have no greater joy than uh, see my children walking the truth." As a father, prioritizing biblically, you know, our relationship with the Lord, uh, our relationship with our, our wives, and then and then those children are, are right next in line. And if we prioritize anything uh, below that, above them. Uh, now we're modeling something other than the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so I think the right priorities, valuing that, that they grow up in the Lord, and then just, just doing life with them, immersing uh, that relationship, father-daughter, father-son, immersing that relationship, bathing it in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. <clears throat> I think you will, you will find that it's the greatest discipleship opportunity you're given in life. Yes, uh, yeah, and I, I also consider it a, an amazing privilege um, and uh, yeah, a great responsibility and a great privilege as well. Uh, Amen. Uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, thanks for that one. Um, Kurt, do you have any other interesting questions, any comments? At this point, I don't have any further questions. Okay. I will allow you to continue. Okay, but um, uh, we can also go into more like interesting, you know, questions, Dr. Cohn, that maybe a little bit off topic or interesting. Like, uh, do you have any interesting uh, hobbies or um, things that you like to do? You know, more and more uh, over time, I, I value uh, just the, the relationship, the aspect of being with family and being with brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, um, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in uh, in writing and teaching and, and, and leadership. Um, and it's at times too much time. And so uh, keeping those priorities and, and, and uh, investing and pouring into those relationships, I think, I wouldn't call it a hobby because that maybe is too too casual. Mm. But as far as uh, really what I enjoy more and more, I I just relish those opportunities of spending that time together, doing you know all manner of things, whether it's uh, just uh, being together, sharing a meal, or playing a game, or uh, watching a film, or you know just uh, going for a walk. Uh, whatever the case may be, sharing the fellowship of the word together. Uh, I've I've grown to appreciate that more and more. Uh, as far as pastimes, I <clears throat> when I have time, I, I like to try to be active and uh, play basketball and try to stay in shape a little bit and 
I like uh, I, I'm a musician as well, so I I will try to uh, uh, do some uh, composing and, and recording and playing and things like that. But uh, lately, I haven't had a lot of time for either. <laughs> yeah, I've I've recently started to uh, uh, get more immersed into music. I didn't have a didn't grow up or in school to have much to do with music, uh, but I bought myself a guitar recently and decided to learn but it's quite the process <laughs> so i'll give you one bit of counsel there uh it, the the strings you choose are very important and i would recommend uh thin strings that are easy to work with because uh, it can be very discouraging if your fingers hurt all the time <laughs> yeah I, I guess that that makes sense um however the genres of music is more heavy so they're the thickest strings help for the sound. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, and I, I would put on acoustic guitars, I would put electric strings to, to mm. be able to play them similarly. But I also enjoy many genres, including heavier genres. And, and I, uh, I personally, I always would go with the thinnest strings that I could get um, and, and get the, the bigness of sound from the sound process. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Uh, so do you, uh, uh, so do you often do, you, uh, in terms of your music, um, do you, uh, tune down to uh, alternate tunings or you just stay in standard tuning or, you, you know, because I, I'm one of these old school guys that uh, on my electric guitar, I use a Floyd Rose tremolo, the whammy bar and, yeah. and that doesn't is not really conducive to a lot of changing tunings and things like that i've experimented with some of that but i've just tried to be a bit of a purist and do uh, with a normal tuning some of the things that other folks are doing with some of the uh, uh, the alternate tunings and to, with mixed results oh i understand <laughs> yeah because i've started to research so first time i heard what drop d was what what, what does that mean and Oh, that's what makes guitars sound cool, basically. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. That, you know, and I've, I've experimented with a uh, seven string for that purpose to get the, <clears throat> to get that real low end uh, oh. while still having the you know, the higher end being what it is. So, no, that sounds like fun. You're into some fun stuff. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm currently actually, that's, I, I'm, my wife always jokes with me um, because I get so distracted with various things and interesting. This is interesting now, and that's interesting now. Uh, I'm for, I'm fortunately in, I'm in a position where I have a bit more free time, but maybe not always as much as I think I do, uh, because I'm a I'm also a, a student. I'm a busy with a PhD currently in pharmaceutics. Um, and my profession is pharmacist, so I part time work in pharmacies and then still busy with the academic side of things as well. But uh, so uh, the academic setting, and I, I assume you would also know, uh, is an interesting type of uh, circumstance to find yourself in, in terms of what you have available and your opportunities and you meet interesting people as well. Um, so uh, maybe I can ask you a question. Uh, what would your advice be in terms of if you have uh, an academic type of goal to reach, you need to complete this course or whatever. Uh, maybe some practical points in terms of uh, getting your goals finished and managing life, <laughs> being a father, being a father, and 
uh, also being a professional on one side, all of that. That's a, that's a very, uh, it's vital and it's a difficult uh, thing. I, I think some talk about balance and I, I would actually kind of discourage balance because with our relationship with the Lord, our relationship with our, our wife, our relationship with our children, it's not about balance. It's about being um, committed, totally committed and, and totally prioritizing, you know, in that order. Uh, everything else, I would say, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. <laughs> uh, which, is, which is strange to hear, I know. Uh, you know, we, we think if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. So I, I would, why not put forth your best effort? Well, <clears throat> when you're when you're you're trying to meet those other commitments that are more important, um, sometimes uh, sometimes a B is okay, <laughs> you know. Sometimes uh, not being able to finish something as quickly is okay. Uh, other times finishing quickly is a part of prioritizing. So I think maybe there's a little more freedom and liberty to uh, uh, to just to prioritize what should be prioritized and, and make sure, for me personally, make sure I understand that the academic pursuit, while it's very important, it's not as important and I should never make it as important. And so that helps me measure my time and how I, uh, how I prioritize. Um, and I find that when, personally, again, when I when I keep the priorities in their biblical spots, in the biblical order, it's much easier to uh, finish things because I've, I've, I'm on a sus more sustainable path. Where when I change it and I'm, I'm prioritizing something that shouldn't be prioritized, that that's unhealthy. I can get away with it for a while, but it eventually uh, catches up. And so I, I would say order your priorities uh, in, in a way that is... Uh, sustainable long term and uh, it won't be easy but it'll be it'll be good that that's just what I found I'd love I'd love some of your your uh, secrets too because you you've obviously made it a long way down that road uh, yes um well in our country um, pharmacist is an is an undergraduate degree it's not like in the US where it's a graduate um, you do an undergraduate and then you do a farm D say where you do have a bachelor of pharmacy and then I went straight on with my master's did a year of community service uh, which is not a, a criminal thing it's uh, a requirement for the health professions in our country you work a year for the government after you've uh, qualified uh, so uh, I didn't have any convictions <laughs> and then I went back to the university knowing that if I'd started full-time uh, working for say a company uh, I, it would be hard to return so I want to get the qualification done because I'm interested in research um, I decided okay then I'll complete it now get it done and then uh, can, I can decide on a specific career choice after that but um, yeah I work part-time as a pharmacist and I enjoy the retail setting but I, it's, I don't think it's something I want to do full-time <laughs> Sure, sure. It's, it's difficult for a lot of reasons. Yeah, it is challenging in terms of, especially in terms of the time that I want to commit yeah. with my family, uh, which is, again, that's those priorities that you've spoken about. Um, 
obviously we have to make sacrifices sometimes, but um, definitely not, I think, an ideal situation to work in retail full-time if you can avoid it. Um, so, uh, good. Uh, still any comments, questions? Uh, yes, I'd, I just have something to add at the, the end when um, everybody's completed talking uh, or speaking. Uh, I just have to leave in about half an hour to do premarital counseling and not for me, for someone else. <laughs> okay. So, Bordet, I don't know how, uh, how many more questions you've got. Uh, not much. Uh, uh, no, I don't think I've any other things. I just have one interesting one that I noticed, uh, Dr. Cohn. Uh, I think on video, one of the th your speaking engagements, maybe more than one, I saw you wore your wristwatch on your right uh, arm. Uh, why is that? Uh, so <laughs> I, I have, uh, I, I've actually recently uh, changed that. I usually wear, would wear it on my right, uh, in large part because of guitar. Um, because I don't, I don't like the idea of having something hanging on my wrist and, and uh, as I'm trying to play guitar. But um, I, I, in, in, in the other aspect is that the way that most watches are, are configured, the, uh, uh, I, I don't know what it's called, but the knob would dig into my hand so on my left hand. So I would I switch to the right hand for those reasons. And I just wore my watch on my right hand for, for years and years. But in the last six months, I've, I've decided I'm going to try to try it again and just switch it back and see. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm currently wearing it on the uh, on the left and, and seeing how that goes. <laughs> that was just a funny one that I thought about now. <laughs> It, it feels really strange to me. I know, and I, I now I, I can sense a little bit of how, uh, you know, for left-handed people, normally they'll wear their watch on the right hand. And a lot of, uh, uh, in years past, uh, it, it was considered an, an evil thing to be left-handed. And so people who were left-handed would be forced to, to relearn everything right-handed. And that caused some real mental challenges. Well, I, I've I just messing with which hand I wear my watch on, I've, ex I've experienced a tiny bit of that feeling. And I, I boy, I, I really can have compassion and empathy for someone who's wrestled with uh, having to switch hands for that. That's, huh. that's very observant of you. <laughs> Just have to put my sh uh, Sherlock cap down again. <laughs> well, um, I think for now, those questions are all, all that, that we had uh, would you be willing to uh, collaborate with us in the future again oh absolutely I'm very much so I'm appreciative of the friendship and ministry and <clears throat> um, any way I can be an encouragement I am uh, happy to do so oh, thank you very much uh, it's been a privilege as well uh, for our side Kurt you said before we close off then you had one final yes. question or comment I do. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, it's been great. And I've also enjoyed learning from you through Versity. Um, my closing um, question for you is um, for those of us in South Africa who are dispensational and classical grace, also called free grace, and we really are a scattered handful that we know of 
Um, we're not concentrated in any one area where we can meet together in a church. So we often just have to stick in our home churches or join a church should we become of the conviction that we are currently of. So I would like to ask you, would you please give a word of encouragement to the normative dispensational and free grace people in South Africa before we close off? Oh, I'd be, I'd be honored to do that. I, uh, <clears throat> our responsibility before the Lord is to steward what he's given. You know, we're, we're first to know him uh, and then to serve him. And we can't know him if we don't know what he said. If we're not diligent in understanding what he said, we can't know him well. Um, and we can't steward, uh, we can't uh, fulfill the responsibilities he's given if we don't know what those responsibilities are and what he said. So I, I want to absolutely commend uh, those who are committed to uh, to allowing him to say what he said in his word, uh, coming humbly to the Bible with a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. Uh, you, you're absolutely doing what he's designed. Uh, and that means you're going to have some very important doctrinal implications. Um, I, I like to say you'll end up with traditional dispensational conclusions. You know, we'll have some different views here or there, but generally you're going to that's where you land and 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 i love kurt how you put it i love the, the phrase classical grace i think i'm going to borrow that phrase from you if i may um i like it much better than free than the term free grace yes uh, because because nothing free about uh, what jesus paid so that we could receive that grace um but uh holding to this idea yeah, I mean, it's counter-religion, uh, the idea that it is God's work, it's His grace, it's His mercy, it's His righteousness. Uh, and in, in the United States, uh, the gospel is very, very distorted and misunderstood, and I know it's all over the world. Um, but I, I just want to encourage you, especially there in South Africa, the need is so, so great. And God has has used and is using that area uh, to impact the world. And God has, over the course of history, has used uh, small things to do big things. And, and people who might seem insignificant in some grand narrative to to change the world and and to uh, impact people's lives. So I just want to encourage you: uh, just be faithful. Don't don't be discouraged. Don't lose heart. Just uh, all the pressures coming against you to be faithful to his word uh, we are seeking the approval of our Lord and not the approval of men and if you are handling his word well you have that so I, I praise God for you for your example and uh, any any way I, I could be an, an encouragement I, I desire to do that Just, uh, be steadfast in his word Thank you very much, Dr. Cohn. That is definitely an encouragement. Thank you for sending out that message to us in South Africa. Right. Um, thank, thank you. Thanks, Dr. Cohn. Um, this has been a, a great privilege to have you on. You have been a tremendous influence on myself and I, I know Kurt as well. 
Uh, I always ask my wife for Dr. Cohn book for a gift uh, for if it's Christmas or a birthday often. Like I have quite a few of you that for a few of your books that have been given to me as gifts because I, I ask so nicely for them, <laughs> which has been quite a, uh, a privilege as well. And uh, this, um, the, the questions and answers is all, this format has been a lot of fun. Um, I look forward to collaborating in the future if that, uh, Lord willing, if that's a possibility. And uh, to our audience, uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, uh, uh, thanks for listening. And if you are willing to give us a, lot of, a rating on whatever platform you listen to, uh, feel free to do that. And I also want to remind you that our opening and closing music track uh, for the podcast um, is Nowhere Land by Kevin McLeod.